is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Tonight's episode is about the trials and tribulations of being in love, and as pop rock legend Huey Lewis once put it, the power of love is a curious thing. Make one man weep, make another man sing. In the case of the chaser, it makes our lead character do a lot of the former rather than the latter. The chaser could be considered your typical be careful what you wish for story. A young man who is infatuated with a woman who isn't returning his feelings is given a method in which the love of his life finally gives him a second look. The method in question, a love potion. Now it's not unusual for love potions, or any potion for that matter, to really never work out the way that the user intends, which can often lead to tragedy. A poison might be put into the wrong drink, a sleeping pill might put someone into a permanent slumber, and as is the case with tonight's tale, a love potion may never wear off. But before we hear from Rod Serling about tonight's episode, let's briefly talk about the introduction. You know, one of the most interesting things about being involved with the Twilight Zone podcast is seeing how the show grew and evolved into the pop culture icon it is today. There are several iconic elements that people often associate with the show, things like that intro music or Rod Serling as an on-screen character, but we tend to forget that they weren't always present despite them now being seen as cornerstones. And of course, there were those little words that Rod would use to close many of his opening narrations, the Twilight Zone. So here we are, 31 episodes into the first season, and it's the first time that those words are being used to close out Serling's dialogue. Mr. Roger Shackleforth, age youthful 20s. Occupation, being in love. Not just in love, but madly, passionately, illogically, miserably, all-consumingly in love. With a young woman named Leela who has a vague recollection of his face and even less than a passing interest. In a moment, you'll see a switch, because Mr. Roger Shackleforth, the young gentleman so much in love, will take a short but very meaningful journey into the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 13th of May, 1960. Directed by Douglas Hayes, who we've encountered in the past with And When the Sky Was Opened and Elegy. And written by a newcomer to the Twilight Zone, Robert Presnell Jr., based off the short story of the same name by John Collier. This would be the only appearance of Robert Presnell Jr. in the Twilight Zone, and perhaps the reason behind that will become clearer as we delve further into the episode, but it's always nice to see a new name in the fifth dimension. We've become so accustomed to seeing the usual writing credits like Serling, Richard Matheson, and Charles Beaumont, so I always find it interesting to hear from a different mind and their interpretation of what the Twilight Zone is. When looking through Presnell Jr.'s IMDb page, there really isn't anything that leaps off in terms of huge successes, and he only has 28 credits to his name between 1948 and 1982. He wrote a few TV movies and adaptations, but like his fleeting visit in the Twilight Zone, his TV credits appear to be reserved to just one episode. 
The short story on which it's based was originally written for the Billy Rose Television Theatre in 1951 and was also adapted for the EC comic series Tales from the Crypt, retitled Loved to Death in the same year. When the comic was turned into the popular HBO series some 40 years later, it would be adapted again for the third season and starred Andrew McCarthy and Muriel Hemingway, but we'll talk about that a bit more later on. So we open on our lovelorn hero Roger Shackleforth, played by George Grizzard, as he tries again and again to call a number from a payphone in a bar. He puts his money in, dials, waits for no one to answer, hangs up, and puts his money back into the phone to restart the cycle. It's a nice opening to the episode and it sort of sets up the kind of character Shackleforth is. He stares blankly and vacant, almost zombie-like as he repeats his motions and while the queue outside the phone booth become more agitated, he is none the wiser, focused only on the task in front of him. However, his expression changes and his face lights up like Christmas when he finally gets his call answered. Hello? Hello, Leela, darling, it's Roger. Oh. Hello, Roger. What is it? May I come to see you? Uh, no. Uh, no, I can't. I couldn't bear to see anybody. I'm a mess. Oh, you could never be a mess. <laughs> Listen, darling, I have to see you. Roger, it's impossible. I must see you, darling, must. Furiously, fiercely, must! I love you. Roger, you've got to stop this. You're acting like a baby. I can't see you now, and that's that. Well, then talk to me. Say something. Say anything. Say something? All right, Roger. I'll say something. Why don't you take a flying jump at the moon? You know, I watched this episode and I wonder just how Roger and Leela got themselves into this situation. Leela is obviously very beautiful, but that's all we're really told about her. Just how did these two meet, and how did she become the object of Roger's affections to the point where he can barely function as a normal human being? It seems harsh to be passing criticisms on the episode so early on, but it's one of my major complaints about The Chaser. I appreciate that there is only so much you can do in a 22 minute format, but love stories need time for characters to grow and therefore their relationship to develop, even if it is in just a few lines of dialogue. The problem with Presnell Jr.'s script is that it just expects us to accept this is the situation. With that said, had Presnell Jr. put these lines in, we might have seen them as forced plot points. There, now, you've, uh, you've finished, haven't you? No, she hung up on me. I've got to call her back and make sure she isn't sore. No, no, please, I have an emergency. Well, so have I. Well, it won't do any good to call. You see, I understand your problem. I all through the door. You can't solve it over the telephone. Here, here's a way to solve your problem. Look, go and see this man, and go and see him right now. Believe me, there is no other way. I know. Go and see that man, and he'll help you. No. No, excuse me. You go and see him now, and all your problems will be solved before the day's over. Thank you. Thank you. Emergency. Oh. One of the points of contention or topics of conversation from several Twilight Zone enthusiasts, if that's what we want to call ourselves, is whether or not the Twilight Zone can do comedy. There are examples where it has worked, but more often than not you tend to find that the more light-hearted episodes are the ones that fall a little flat. In the case of The Chaser, I wouldn't go as far as to call it a comedy episode, but the naming of Professor A. Demon is a little on the nose, a little corny, and perhaps a little bit silly. It's not uncommon in the Twilight Zone for a mystical figure to give themselves a name which sounds real but is a play on who they really are, a devil character calling himself Lou for example, but here it just doesn't quite work. 
had they made light of this with the characters discussing the pronunciation in an almost keeping up appearances style gag, the joke might have worked a little better. It would be fair to say that the set design for the Chaser is pretty pedestrian, but the entrance to Demon's place of work is really striking and quite inventive. Roger Shackleforth steps up to a door, rings the bell, and when the door opens, it reveals a pitch black space with another door at the end of it. It's a nice touch by Douglas Hayes, and it really feels like Roger is stepping into an unknown place with no real environment, as if he was stepping through that door that is unlocked with the key of imagination. The set inside the second door is quite simple, but also very interesting. In the book Serling, The Rise and Twilight of Television's Last Angry Man, Douglas Hayes said, That was one of the great things about The Twilight Zone. I had total freedom. Sometimes I would think of an idea to make the episode more Twilight Zone-y, but that would require some expense. I remember one episode, The Chaser, in which I devised a huge bookcase that must have doubled the budget, but they never blinked an eye. They just said, okay, great. I didn't have to argue with anyone about money. They'd argue about the money and let me have it. I knew they were having problems with Jim Aubrey, but they kept them away from me. My responsibility was just to get the job done. Now, Jim Aubrey will be a name that will crop up again when we talk about the budget cuts of season two, but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Professor A. Demon is played by John McIntyre, who had a few roles in big-name shows like Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Incredible Hulk, and Different Strokes, but he was best known for westerns due to his grizzled, craggy features and steel-eyed stare. He was a regular on the TV show Wagon Trail and The Virginians, which I'll admit I'm not overly familiar with, but perhaps those are references our American listeners will appreciate. He also provided voice work on the Disney animation classics The Fox and the Hound and The Rescuers, but he is most recognisable for playing Detective Al Chambers in Alfred Hitchcock's classic Psycho. He lived a long life, and he was working right up until he died of lung cancer and emphysema in 1991, with the Tom Hanks buddy cop movie Turner and Hooch being his last credit. I think McIntyre does a good job here in the role with what he has to play with. His only real purpose in the episode is to give Shackleforth the MacGuffin to drive the story forward, but he does carry a tired and weary existence as if this is something he's been doing for too long, and I really like that edge about him. You want success, money, and minus the world at your feet. No, that's not it at all. Power! You want power. No, no you don't understand. All I want is Leela. Leela? Yeah, if I have Leela, I can do all the rest myself. Leela. I might have known all he wants is Leela. I offer him practically anything, and all he wants is Leela. And I guess there's nothing you can do about that. That's the simplest of all, the elementary parlor trick of my science. You disappoint me. No, you don't understand. <laughs> you see, I'm in love with somebody named Leela, but she's not in love with me. And I don't know why I'm telling you I this. do. I can arrange it so she'll love you. How? I promise you, she'll never leave your side. When she isn't telling you she loves you, she'll be gazing at you lovingly. She won't even eat before you do, and nothing will be too much for you to ask of her. She'll worship you, she'll beg for kisses and weep for joy at your touch. And if in passing time you should perhaps look at another girl, or even do a little more than look, she'll feel hurt. But she'll forgive you and love you just the same. Frankly, you'd get the same shake from a Cocker Spaniel. But that's wonderful. That's all in the world I want, my Leela's love. His Leela's love. If it isn't his Leela's love, it's his Dorothy's love, his Rhea's love, or his Gwen's love. Tell me, are you sure you wouldn't be interested in the glove cleaner, as I call it? 
There are many names for it, including the Eradicator. But Roger doesn't go for the glove cleaner, and instead goes for the love potion, which he buys for just one dollar. So Roger now has his love potion, and he goes over to Leela's apartment to spike her drink with it, and once again, it feels a little bit rushed and a bit forced. We're never really given any impression of their relationship or lack thereof, and we don't know what Roger does for a living or if he even has a job, and the same can be said for Leela. Looking at her apartment, she's clearly very affluent and sought after, but she isn't given much of a character outside of not liking Roger. But some of that is about to change as he pours the love potion into a glass of champagne, which she drinks quickly. One last little kiss. Roger, please, let's not prolong this any longer. I haven't the time. Now, please go. Now. I don't love you. I don't want you here. I don't even like you at the moment. Now, please go. Oh. Here. That's the best I can do. And that took all my strength. Roger? Oh, wait a minute. Uh, perhaps I am being cruel. I don't mean to be. Oh, no. Roger? Let me make it a little nicer. What's happening? What's happening? What difference? Come here, baby. Based on my feedback for the episode so far, you'd probably think that I'm not much of a fan, but it's not quite the case. The episode is fine, it's just not that great. However, what I will say is that Patricia Barry is really great in her role as Leela. She only has two speeds, dismissive and subservient, but she does both fantastically well. And it's in the second half of the episode where she really shines. We discover that Roger and Leela are now married and have been for six months, and we get a view of what their everyday life is like. In a nice touch by Douglas Hayes, Roger is reading the paper, which takes up a lot of the frame, and as he pulls it down, he reveals Leela sitting at his feet, looking at him longingly. And it's, it's a really nice moment, and it's such a contrast to the scene that we'd seen previously. And throughout the scene, we see that it is now Leela that can't leave Roger alone. Am I disturbing your reading? No, no, no. Did I disturb you by asking you if I was disturbing you? No. No, no, dearest, not at all. Oh, Roger. I love you, Roger. I'm so happy you're you. You're just perfect. <laughs> I, I love to say I love you. I love to love you. Leela, I've got to go out. Out? I've got an appointment. I almost forgot. Darling... Will you be long? I don't know. I may be late. Would you like me to go, too? No, 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 no. I won't be late. Why don't you stay here and, and hug my jacket or something? Is anything wrong, Roger, darling? No, dearest. No, it's just that I've got an appointment and I'm late and I need a little air. While you're gone, my love will grow and grow. And when you get back... <laughs> 
I do really like this scene, my earlier criticisms of the episode feeling rushed are still prevalent here, and I do think that had the story and characters been given more time to breathe and develop, this scene would have had a much better impact. But it is carried very well by our two leads, and as I said before, Patricia Barry is really great in the role. I think it's because she's so callous towards him at the start of the episode, it's quite amusing to see her so head over heels in love with him. But it's all too much for Roger, and he makes his excuse to leave, and heads back to Professor A. Demon to see if there's a way for him to get out of this situation. Oh, the glove cleaner, huh? <laughs> Say, do you sell much of that stuff? Now and again. By the way, what's in it? No trace, no odor, no taste, no way to detect its presence. And it's sure. $1,000. That's what you came for, isn't it? Me? No, not at all. Painless? Of course. It's perfect for its purpose. The only thing of its kind in the world. Interesting. She loves you as I said she would, doesn't she? A constant love, and nothing you can do to her will change it. She worships and adores you, and hangs on your every word. Yes, yes, she does. One thousand dollars. Professor, I am going out of my ever-loving mind. I can't stand it anymore. Naturally. Is there such a thing as being loved too much? Isn't there somewhere we can just quiet it down a little? No. Well, isn't there some potion that'll transfer a little of this love to someone else? Like a nice cocker spaniel? Not a chance. She's yours. But she's so nice to me. She's so very good. I know. The glove cleaner is the only way. And that's what it's resorted to. The woman he once loved and adored has become such a burden on his life that he feels the need to kill her. An overreaction? Perhaps, but this is where the problem of underdeveloping the characters and their relationship comes into play. If the script or Hayes had added some scenes of them being happy together and then Leela slowly grinding him down, his decision to buy the glove cleaner from Damon might not have seemed so outlandish. It's also quite a dark turn for what has been a light and frothy episode, which is something I usually like, the idea of leading a viewer down one path and then yanking them down another with a clever turn, but here it just seems out of character. So, just as before, he spikes her drink and takes it over to her, only this time she tells him some news. She's pregnant. Lover Marshmallow, come here. Come sit next to your Leela. Come on. Yeah. Oh! <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Baby bunny. <laughs> I've got news for you, sweet little rabbit. Rabbit. Darling, oh, well, we won't worry about it. We don't need champagne. We've got each other. It's all right. I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have gone through with it. I could never have gone through with it. Just think of it, darling. This is only the beginning. We'll be like this for the rest of our lives, won't we? The rest of our lives. I mentioned earlier the tale from the crypt version of this story titled Love to Death from the third season. Perhaps it's because I am of a certain generation being born in the mid-80s, but I really like Tales from the Crypt. It had a wicked sense of humour, and while a lot of the episodes were duds, there were a few that stand the test of time. Love to Death is one of those episodes which is just really there, it's nothing special, but there are some elements of it that handle the story better than The Chaser does. You get to see how and why Edward falls in love with Miranda, and there's a much more sinister edge to the Mr. Stronholm character as he tricks the lover boy into taking the love potion. As you would expect from Tales from the Crypt, it has an extremely dark sense of humour, and certainly won't be to everybody's taste. And 
I don't really want to spoil the ending for anyone who hasn't seen it. And if you do want to see it, check it out. I highly recommend it. Uh, so you might want to give the next minute or so a skip. But I do really like the ending of the drinks being switched and Edward accidentally drinking the poison, leading to this ironic finale. As I said at the start of the episode, the Chaser is your typical be careful what you wish for story and despite my complaints about the episode, it's it's really not that terrible. The Twilight Zone was never a series of hit after hit, success after success. There are of course the episodes that stand out from the others and have become part of the show's lexicon in terms of classic television, but there were episodes like The Chaser, perfectly fine, if slightly flawed stories. Now Mark Zickery of the Twilight Zone Companion was a bit more dismissive of the episode than I am. In it he writes, Very little distinguishes The Chaser other than the fact it was the only episode of the first season not written by Serling, Beaumont or Matheson. Adapted by Robert Presnell Jr. from a superior and much shorter story by John Collier, this script was originally written and aired for the Billy Rose Television Theatre in 1951. Collier's story in its entirety consists simply of a dialogue between two men, one young, one old, in a tiny sparse furnished room. The young man has come to buy a love potion. The old man sells it to him for a dollar, darkly hinting that in years to come, when he is more prosperous, he will no doubt return to buy the $5,000 spot remover. In enlarging this piece for television, a number of scenes between the young man and the object of his affection, both before and after administration of the potion, were added. This had the unfortunate result of obscuring and trivializing what is essentially a beautifully conceived vignette. Mr. Roger Shackleforth who has discovered at this late date that love can be as sticky as a vat of molasses, as unpalatable as a hunk of spoiled yeast, and as all-consuming as a six-alarm fire in a bamboo and canvas tent. Case history of a lover boy who should never have entered the Twilight Zone. Well, that's my first step into the fifth dimension. I apologise if it's a bit rough around the edges. This is uh, this is a lot different to the podcast I'm used to doing, I'll be honest. Uh, I've recorded around three episodes so far, and I'm improving with each one, so you might have to bear with me if you weren't a fan of it tonight. Uh, I suppose it can only get better. My intention is to get these out every Monday evening UK time, so they will probably be in most people's podcast feeds Tuesday uh, with any luck. I'm hoping to do this on a weekly basis, but there might be times where I go on holiday or I'm not well, and that might postpone things a little bit, but my intention is to get these out every week. I first want to thank Tom for giving me this opportunity. No one really likes change, and I too was gutted when I got the email from him saying he was hanging up the headphones, but I'm glad and truly honoured that I can carry on this journey. As I said in last week's episode, Tom really created something special with the Twilight Zone podcast and I want to make sure that I can match up to the high bar that he set. He is, and always will be, 
are Rod Serling, so I guess that makes me Forrest Whitaker. I also want to thank everyone who has sent me emails, Facebook messages and tweets wishing me luck on my first episode. It really means a lot and it's a testament to the great community Tom created with this show. So my thanks to Matt Lloyd for sending me a really nice email as well as at Dubcraft, at Nerd Explains, and David Caolo, I hope I'm saying that right, who contacted me via Twitter. And lastly, Nick, James, and Aaron, who left me messages on the Twilight Zone Network Facebook page. Your messages really do mean a lot, and I hope I've met everyone's approval with my first adventure. But before I leave you tonight, I also wanted to say thanks for those who've been supporting me in the lead up to all of this. My girlfriend Kate, Chris Brown of the Night Gallery and Video Nasties podcast, Ollie and Gary over at Flickering Myth, Fred at the Twilight Pwn podcast, which is a really great podcast that you should all check out, and my good friend Ross Williams, and of course, Tom Elliott. So there's not a lot of news in the Twilight Zone world for this week. But there is a toy company called Biff Bang Pow who have been putting out some really great Twilight Zone figures, um, a lot of 6-inch and 8-inch figures. They even did a, uh, a life-size Talking Tina, which is pretty terrifying, I'll be honest. Uh, and they've done some Mystic Seer stuff from uh, Nick of Time, etc. And a couple of weeks ago, they announced they're releasing a line of three and three quarter inch figures of the Twilight Zone characters. And there's some really good ones in there, like the Zacanamit and the Invaders and Talkie Tina, and some really, really good stuff actually. And I'm, I'm looking forward to those coming out. The uh, the idea of three and three quarter inch figures has become very popular um, in the last five, six years or so within toys. So it surely comes no surprise that Biff Bang Power joining the bandwagon. But anyway, that's it from me. No feedback for this episode, but if you do want to leave feedback about The Chaser or next week's episode, please do get in touch with me. You can email me, luke at thetwilightzonenetwork.com, or find me on Twitter at LukeWrightStuff, or on facebook.com forward slash thetwilightzonenetwork, and you can also find the show on Twitter at twilightzonenet. Next week, we'll be looking at A Passage for Trumpets, so I look forward to speaking with you then. Take care. Bye-bye.